This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 3, The Classical World, Episode 43, The Flavian Dynasty. During the last episode, we described the story of the first five emperors of Rome with particular focus on the differences in success of each one and how they managed to balance the needs of the empire with the many different establishments and their own personal desires. Augustus brought stability to the empire following on from the continuous civil wars and disputes of the final decades of the Roman Republic. Rome never really found anybody as good as Augustus throughout the years of the Julio-Claudian dynasty. Tiberius lacked the charisma to be an effective politician, allowing stronger characters to dominate him. Both Caligula and Nero were somewhat despotic, thinking very little of condemning their political opponents to death. Claudius was competent but unwilling to maintain any kind of strong diplomatic bond with the Roman Senate. Out of these five Julio-Claudian dynasty emperors, Nero was the final one. Nero had upset many and this led many to gun for him. Nero was all too aware of this when he committed suicide in the year 68. The Praetorian Guard had openly declared their approval of the Hispania governor Galba and had convinced the Senate to recognise him as Nero's successor. And this was all while Nero was still alive. So it was clear that Nero's reign was no longer going to be tolerated. Galba was an elderly aristocrat without children. So it may well be that the Praetorian Guard saw someone who would empathise with them as individuals much better than Nero could. And the Senate saw someone who they could dominate and potentially try to eliminate the existence of a dynastic monarchy as the position of Roman Emperor had become. Galba had his own clear ideas about governing and he was mean and miserly choosing not to pay soldiers and members of the Praetorian Guard. It may just have been the fact that Nero had left the Roman economy in such a mess that Galba believed that it was a necessity. Whether or not this was the case, the decision was not received well at all, because it may have been Galba himself who promised the payment. When Galba had first come to Rome to replace Nero, he was accompanied by the governor of Hispania, Lusitania, which are roughly the lands of the modern country of Portugal and neighbouring lands of western Spain. The governor's name was Otto. When Galba came to name his heir, Otto assumed that he would be at the front of the queue. 
but he wasn't, and Galba chose someone else. So Otto approached the Praetorian Guard and promised to give them what Galba hadn't, and this was enough to see Galba and his heir murdered in the Roman Forum in January 69. So Galba was the perfect choice to be emperor while Nero was still alive. But after that, it just didn't work out. The Roman military legions of Germania had already dismissed their loyalty to Galba and declared their recognition of their own commander, Vitellius, as their Roman emperor. When Otto was declared as the new Roman Emperor in Rome on the death of Galba in January 69, they stayed loyal to Vitellius. So this was the biggest issue of the year 69 in the Roman Empire. Governors of different provinces of the empire were being supported by their own legions, so loyalties had become fragmented. Galba, the governor of Hispania, had been ousted by Otto, the governor of Lusitania. Vitellius, the governor of Germania, staked his claim with the support of his legionaries. And later on in the year, the legionaries of the eastern provinces would support the claim of their own military commander, a man called Vespasian. This whole episode played itself out during the course of the year 69. Two key battles took place at a place called Bedriacum, which is situated in the far north of the Italian peninsula, near the local modern Italian municipality of Calvatoni. Otto was all too aware of the threat of Vitellius and was not prepared to wait until Vitellius marched on Rome. Otto had only been the Roman Emperor for two months when he decided to take his legions north to meet the legions of Vitellius. The conflict played out at the first battle of Bedriacum in April 69 and after a fierce day of battle the forces of Vitellius had got the upper hand and forced the surrender of the legionaries of Otto. Otto recognised his defeat and committed suicide and Vitellius was proclaimed as a new emperor just three months after Otto's accession. It would be once Vitellius assumed the role of Roman emperor that the challenge of Vespasian emerged from the eastern provinces. Vitellius replaced the Praetorian Guard and legionaries who had supported Otto were snubbed, causing many of them to defect to the cause of Vespasian. Vespasian would dispatch those defected forces under the command of Marcus Antonius Primus to pursue his cause. Antonius's forces scored a significant victory over those of Vitellius at the Second Battle of Bedriacum, which opened the door for Vespasian to capitalise on Vitellius's subsequent abdication, and so Vespasian's army entered Rome in December 69 and Vitellius was murdered. Vespasian closed out the year 69 as the new emperor, a year that is now retrospectively called the year 
of the four emperors. Galba, Otto, Vitellius, Vespasian. Vespasian. The imperial experiment had become progressively more unsuccessful over time since its inception back in 27 BCE when Octavian was invited to become the first Roman emperor as Augustus. All eyes were now on Vespasian to demonstrate that imperial rule was better than republican rule. Vespasian was around 60 years of age when he became the Roman emperor. Vespasian was a vital part of the victories in Britannia in the year 43 under the rule of Emperor Claudius. Vespasian didn't immediately come to Rome because he was in the middle of dealing with a revolt in Judea, which had started back during the reign of Nero, while Vespasian was the Roman governor there. Many revolts had been instigated during the reign of Emperor Nero, mainly due to Nero acting completely irresponsibly with the Roman treasury. Nero was particularly ignorant of the feelings of the Judeans, ignoring the sanctity of their Jewish religion and hiking up the taxes. This sparked a rebellion which escalated into a military conflict between the Romans and a provisional Judean government which had been formed in the year 66. Vespasian was sent to deal with the rebellion which saw the entire area become a place of political turmoil as local radical groups tried to take advantage of the conflict to assert their authority. Vespasian would be assisted by his son Titus, often called Titus, in trying to re-establish Roman rule of the province and when Vespasian was promoted to becoming the emperor, Titus would take command and achieve victory over the Judeans in the year 70. Much of Jerusalem was destroyed, including the second temple. This can actually take us all the way back to episode 1 of this volume. When the Jews returned to Jerusalem back in the 6th century BCE, they rebuilt their sacred temple that was destroyed by the Babylonians earlier in the same century. Now their new temple had been destroyed by the Romans, but for the Romans they had successfully put down this major rebellion. Another troublesome individual was Gaius Julius Chivilis who was known for his rebellious attitude among the Germanic tribes in the north of the empire. Generally, the Romans treated their Germanic subjects with a degree of respect, but Civilis had somehow managed to stir them into rebelling against Rome. And it could be on the grounds of higher taxation or obligatory conscription. Had the Germanic tribe of the Batavi and their allies achieved victory during this rebellion, then an independent Gallic Empire could have resulted. But this was not the outcome as the Roman legions representing Vespasian's Roman Empire achieved supremacy by the year 70 and subjugated the Batavi once more. We have no record of the ultimate fate of Chivilis. In hindsight, Vespasian had steered Rome through a difficult period with the right strategy. 
he initially ensured that all major rebellions had been suppressed before exercising necessary and strict financial control of the empire. This was needed in order to stabilise a weakened economy, which had been ruined by the reckless behaviour of Emperor Nero. Vespasian had also successfully brought the Roman legions into a much more unified army under the Roman banner. During the 60s, the Roman army had fragmented under the rule of their respective regional governors, which resulted in the civil conflicts of the year 69 and the year of the four emperors. On the whole, Vespasian can be described as a confident and responsible emperor. He showed respect to the Roman Senate and was therefore ticking all the boxes in a way that no other emperor had done since the reign of Augustus. His son Titus had performed well in Judea and was being prepared to be his father's successor and so the foundations for a new Roman dynasty had been laid, the Flavian dynasty, so named after Vespasian, full name Titus Flavius Vespasianus. Some do cite Tiberius and Claudius as not being bad emperors, but in my opinion this is really only because the Roman Empire did not suffer during the reigns of each of those emperors, as it did during the reigns of Caligula and Nero. The things that set Tiberius and Claudius aside from Augustus and Vespasian for me is their characters. Tiberius didn't have the charisma to be a successful emperor, and much work was done by others in his absence. Claudius was somewhat successful, but he made little effort to unite and involve the different political entities of Rome. What Rome gained from Vespasian was a man who was able to balance all of the different aspects of the Roman constitution in a way that had not been seen since the days of Augustus. Vespasian was frugal without being miserly and he would instigate great building projects but he would do so within the treasury's means. He would live a humble life without extravagance which is in stark contrast to the last significant predecessor in the role, Nero. The stability of the empire on his death in the year 79 had not been so good since the reign of Claudius. Titus Titus was prepared to succeed his father with care. Vespasian was as responsible with preparing a successor as he was with governing the empire. Initially, Titus was brought up alongside Britannicus, the son of Claudius. Titus was actually a couple of years older than Britannicus, but sadly Britannicus never made it to his 14th birthday, dying of natural causes. But it is also worth noting that he was the dynastic rival to the new Emperor Nero at the time. Titus would go on to initially have a military career before his father summoned him to Rome to accompany him on much of his imperial duties and not only learn firsthand but actually assist his father firsthand. One criticism that we can see of Titus was that he had much more of an eye for indiscipline than his father and was guilty of conceding to vices such as love affairs. However, if anyone feared that this young hope could have turned out like Nero, 
and it is worth noting that Titus was almost 40 years of age when he succeeded his father and took his responsibility to Rome very seriously. The biggest difference of character between Nero and Titus was that Titus was not a selfish character and was very capable of acts of generosity. Titus would see the conclusion of the construction of the Colosseum of Rome, which was commissioned by his father Vespasian, who would sadly not see it completed. The Colosseum would also be called the Flavian Amphitheatre, in respect of the Flavian ruling dynasty to which Vespasian and Titus belonged. The Roman Empire under Emperor Titus suffered misfortunes though as Mount Vesuvius violently erupted in the opening months of his reign, famously burying the towns of Pompeii and Herculaneum, among others, in the year 79. The following year, another fire had broken out in the city of Rome itself, which undoubtedly would have sparked off memories of the fire of 64 under Emperor Nero. There was also a plague in Rome around the same time as the fire, so nature was really not smiling on Titus. Despite all of this, we really don't see much in the way of public opinion against Titus, which could have been reasonable if we consider that the Romans could have considered the gods to be against him. Instead, we can see that Titus was at the forefront of relief efforts to aid the recovery of the city in the aftermath. It seems that the Romans appreciated Titus. Vespasian also had another son, the younger brother of Titus called Domitian, sometimes called Domitian. Domitian had really played second fiddle to his older brother in the course of events, with Titus understandably receiving the lion's share of the educational and imperial opportunities. During the reign of Vespasian, Domitian was granted ceremonial statuses, which wouldn't have meant a great deal factually. He would have received privileges just for being a member of the royal family, so he may have felt that these statuses were somewhat meaningless in terms of creating his own story and legacy to the Roman history. In the year 81, both Titus and Domitian went to the Sabine Hills outside Rome and Titus did not return. Rumours state that Domitian poisoned his brother and dynastic rival, but we can't just assume that everyone was poisoning everyone else in Roman history as it's a little bit too convenient. Suetonius certainly recognised that Domitian would have been very indifferent about whether Titus was alive or dead, and it would be just as reasonable to assume that if Titus caught malaria, as sources state, then Domitian might not have felt inclined to do much to help his brother. The fact that Domitian was ready and prepared to jump into his brother's throne is suspicious though. Domitian Titus was just 42 years old when he died in 81 and had only been the emperor for just over two years. Despite the natural disasters of his brief reign, he was still a popular emperor and was deified after his lifetime, meaning that he would be worshipped as a god. 
Domitian was less responsible than his brother and his father, taking a much more frivolous attitude to the treasury, which would have horrified his father. However, Rome was still in the course of being rebuilt following the fire of the year 80, but it does appear that Domitian spared little expense. Not being known for his military abilities, Domitian chose to increase the pay of the legionaries. So we can see some of the carefree financial attitudes of Nero and some of the anti-establishment attitudes of Claudius. Ever since the Roman invasion and subsequent occupation of southern Britannia from the year 43, the Romans had gradually expanded their influence by the reign of Domitian so that the Romans had control of the areas equivalent to the modern countries of England and Wales. Famously, the tribes of the lands of the modern country of Scotland provided stout resistance to the Romans, and this apparent difficulty caused Domitian to reduce the amount of legions in Britannia. Domitian would have to deal with problems elsewhere in the empire when the Dacians crossed the Danube and the Romans actually found themselves to be defending territory. However, they did this successfully, pushing the Dacians back to their own side of the Danube. The Dacians occupied the lands not dissimilar to those of the modern country of Romania, and Domitian, despite resisting the Dacians, chose not to pursue them. Instead, Domitian chose the option of paying an annual tribute to the Dacian king, Decebalus. Despite Domitian's attempts to befriend his army, this would not prevent the Roman senator and general Saturninus leading a revolt against Domitian in the year 89. Domitian's reaction to this would send ripples throughout the political setup of Rome. Saturninus and many other senators were executed by Domitian in an act which some cite as being extreme and paranoid. Domitian was seemingly a little bit reclusive, so it does seem as if he was very good at alienating people. He had alienated many aristocrats, many legionaries, many senators and many philosophers. And history has taught us that as a Roman emperor, you cannot afford to lose the confidence of so many aspects of Rome's social and political ranks. The population of Rome wouldn't have necessarily have felt the strain of Domitian's reign with him spending plenty of treasury money on chariot races, gladiatorial contests, music and gymnastics, among other things. The citizens of Rome probably had very little to complain about. This honestly wouldn't make any kind of difference though. Domitian was an able administrator, but a terrible diplomat and it would be that that would lead to his downfall. Domitian would make so many others fearful of their own lives, including members of his imperial staff and even his own wife, that it became a case of it's either him or me. We can't be completely sure who exactly the conspirators were, but in the years 96 and after a reign of over 15 years, longer than anyone since Tiberius, Domitian was stabbed to death by a number of members of his imperial staff, possibly at the instigation of members of the aristocracy, but possibly with the blessing of many, including 
his own wife. Domitian's tense reign was over, as was the Flavian dynasty. It would fall into the hands of the Senate to put forward a successor. The Senate may have been happy to go back to a republic-style governance, but the Praetorian Guard would not have allowed it. Rome was now a nation with factions regulating each other and preventing each other from becoming too powerful. It seems that both the Senate and the Praetorian Guard approved the accession of a man called Nerva, who had been a loyal imperial servant to many emperors over the years. And now, at the age of 66, he was handed the big one. Domitian had exercised an autocratic style of rule in which he considered himself to be absolutely powerful over Rome and Nerva was trusted to undo all of the damage. A new dynasty By selecting Nerva, the Roman Senate and the Praetorian Guard would have hoped to have found a new Vespasian an emperor with no real intention to self-serve, but with a genuine desire to rule the empire properly, and with a wisdom that only a lifetime of observing the politics of Rome could hone. The Senate would have some very clear ideas about drawing a line under the past. They were thrilled to see the back of Domitian, and made a considerable effort to erase his legacy by melting down his statues and removing his name from monuments in a manner that the ancient Egyptians would have been proud of. Never would be expected to try and undo all of Domitian's bad reforms, but as history teaches us time and time again, you cannot turn the clock back. So Never would have had to have revised the reforms rather than reverse them due to the permanent effects of those reforms. It seems that Nerva was put under a lot of pressure to please a lot of people in a very short amount of time, and the weight of expectation may have been unfairly large. He would have had to have pulled the purse strings back in, in a similar manner to Vespasian after Nero. Where Domitian has imposed harsh laws on people speaking out against the emperor, and high taxation on the Jewish community, Nerva tried to undo all of those unnecessary and unjust policies. Never would try to promote the frugal style of living for the sake of the empire as a whole. The armies were a little bit concerned, however, as they feared that Nerva could take back the pay rises that Domitian had instigated. So there was a significant movement that was supported by the Praetorian Guard to bring the murderers of Domitian to justice. They demanded a brutal execution, which Nerva undoubtedly felt uncomfortable approving. They also insisted upon Nerva declaring an heir to the role of emperor, quite likely wanting to pressurise him into announcing one of their own. So he selected a military man who himself originated from Hispania, but was a member of the Umbrian gens, Alpia, which were well known to Rome. And his name was Trajan. Never would adopt Trajan, which would meet the approval of the army 
and the Praetorian Guard. Others may not have fully approved of a man born outside of Italian lands being set up as the next emperor, but Nerva went ahead nonetheless. Whether Nerva had an opinion that Trajan was suitable material is possible, but actually neither here nor there. Nerva really didn't get to make many decisions without heavy amounts of pressure and this is likely due to the fact that Domitian before him had been so absolute in his rule that the Senate and the Praetorian Guard had no interest in allowing an emperor to have too much say. January 98 and Nerva suffered a stroke before developing a fever and his health declined very quickly and by the end of the month he had died. Roundup As we move into the second century we move into a period described as a Roman Golden Age. Nerva is the first of what the 15th and 16th century Italian philosopher Machiavelli would call the five good emperors. Here we will see how the social and political system in Rome evolves further into something that the 19th century sociologist German Karl Marx might deem to be an inevitability. The Roman experiment of having a powerful emperor solved a set of problems but created a new set. The emperor could have a direct hand in preventing the senate conserving the division between wealthy aristocrats and the regular citizens. However, when it came to open conflict between the emperor and the senate, then the praetorian guard, who were essentially military personnel, would be the ones that would often get their hands dirty. So if the emperor saw fit to target the senate, and questionably execute treasonous senators, then the Senate may appeal to the Praetorian Guard to take action. But likewise, should the Senate attempt to diminish the powers of the Emperor, then the Praetorian Guard would step in. New Emperors would often either be senators or military commanders. So, the progression from Republic to Empire simply created a scenario where there were more regulatory powers at play, either for or against each other, or for the ultimate prosperity of the empire as a whole. As we can see, the emperor himself could be good, or he could be bad. And often we see that it is down to the individual character of that one man. So far, we have told the story of 12 Roman emperors. We have covered some good ones, such as the confident and decisive Augustus and the dutiful and frugal Vespasian. We have also covered some bad ones, such as the frivolous and self-centred Nero and the reclusive and paranoid Domitian. What is most interesting to social historians about Rome is that Rome was not influenced by foreign invaders and therefore was a rare case of how a society often and understandably at odds with itself would evolve and make the necessary changes to regulate itself. The beauty of the story that we are telling here is that we get to watch that evolution continue during the forthcoming episodes.
Thank you so much for listening to this week's podcast. Let's get straight into the post-podcast chit-chat. Um, some messages that we've received this week. Uh, Jerome Sinsky wrote in and said, Dear Mr. Hasler, thanks for the amazing history podcast. You have the perfect balance between the academic and easily understood information. Love the accent too. Sincerely, Jerry Sinsky, uh, Escondido, California. Um, Mandy Kirk has sent in a message saying, finally taking the step of signing up to pitch in towards your valuable work on this project. Uh, Sorry it's taken me a few weeks since discovering you to pitch in. As a high school teacher, I appreciate your ability to synthesise and summarise wide-ranging information with important insights, and I learn new things more often than I thought possible. Would like to hear some more about women, um, if that's possible. I know there isn't much in those old original sources, but maybe Hypatia. Not complaining, but hoping for more representation than the usual Cleopatra and Boudicca. Thanks again for all you do to keep history riveting. Uh, thank you, Mandy. Yeah, um, of course, obviously, um, some, if you sign up for Patreon and um, and you reach the desired threshold, you can actually commission a podcast episode on the subject of your choice. So it might be worth um, considering. Um, Adrian Blizzard wrote in saying, Love the Texas accent, Chris. Uh, I think he's making fun of a previous... Uh, a previous comment from a, from an episode a week or two ago. Uh, love history and your podcast does a great job of making interesting historical perspectives come to life. Keep on keeping on, my new friend. P.S. I've only heard two casts and can't wait to start from the beginning and experience your journey. Um, and uh, let's move on from there. Let's see what else we've got. Ah, yes, yes, we, some messages come through on the Facebook Messenger page for the for the page um, on the um, Facebook, the History of the World podcast group page. Uh, Tedge Turner has put, uh, hey Chris, I got into your podcast a couple of months ago and I've just reached the one about the chabbing culture in South America. Everything has been great so far. I particularly enjoyed the early ones about the proto-hominids as not many other podcasts have tackled that subject. The Chabin culture one particularly resonated with me as I've actually been to Chabin de Wantar and I found myself remembering it all vividly through your description. At the end of the podcast, you mentioned that you welcome photos to add to your site. I happen to be a travel blogger who has spent three years around Asia and South America and I've visited many sites as I find them fascinating. If ever you want to use any of the photos I've taken as a resource, uh, feel free to help yourself. That's a very kind offer, very, very kind offer. Um, what I would um, suggest, uh, Tej, is, if, is why not share them with the whole community? You know, we've got uh, hundreds of people I'm sure will be absolutely fascinated by the images that you've taken. So um, thanks a lot, Tej, and, and look forward to you coming back to me on that. Uh, Pateri Lindblad, um, forgive me, forgive me if I've mispronounced that. Um, Hello, I've just found your podcast series and enjoy it a lot. I used to be more into newer history and have now delved into Paleolithic, Neolithic Revolution and the formation of states and even older stuff. I find this area particularly interesting as I'm a registered dietitian myself. 
A paleo diet is a fad diet these days, but as I've studied Paleolithic and Neolithic, I've found that the paleo diet used today historically incorrect. In the modern paleo diet is included olive oil and coconut oil, which were used only after the Neolithic revolution. Also, Paleolithic people used wild grains, so excluding grains from the paleo diet seems inaccurate. So thank you for your podcasts. If I can make a wish, that would be a podcast episode about the nutrition of Paleolithic and Neolithic revolution uh, times. Thanks and best regards. Uh, Pateri Lindblad from Finland. Um, wonderful. Thank you so much for the message, Pateri. Uh, very interesting. Um, I can't remember anyone sending me a message about that particular subject, so I always like to see that. Um I did get a message also from um, a good friend of the podcast called Bella Boyd. And um, she's mentioned that um, she's actually starting her own podcast project about history and horses. And um, I've listened to a little bit of an introduction that she she very kindly sent to me. Um, And um, I really enjoyed it. It sounds like it's going to be a big project and... Um, she's really putting some energy and um, some research into it and uh, has got a big plan of action. So like, I think that could be um, one of those podcasts that becomes quite popular. If she, if she can pull it off, it's a, it's a tall order, but I think she's up for it. And from what I can see and hear from what she's already written, it, it sounds like it's um, it's going to be an interesting podcast. She's She seems to be... Um, uh, very well um, able to convey um, the information and um, her voice is very easy to listen to. So looking forward to hopefully plugging that at some point. I also got a message from Preeti Zakaria who's put, uh, Hello, my name is Preeti and I'm a journalist, writer and teacher in Chennai, India. Just pinged you to tell you that I love your podcast and have learned so much from it. Um, I was, I'm listening to it when I walk and travel and was pretty excited to discover the Madrasian culture. I live in Chennai near uh, Atirampakan, where the lower Paleolithic tools were discovered. That's fantastic. Uh, thank you for the fabulous work. I am now learning about the ancient world and hope to finish that soon. Um, thank you, Preeti. Yeah, it's brilliant to uh, be able to reach out to other parts of the world um, that aren't necessarily closely culturally linked to where I am and, um, you know, share the stories of our, our ancient world and, um, you know, certainly the stories that India hold. India is an incredibly important part of the world. There's so much history linked to India and the lands of India. Um impossible to ignore and I'll look forward to um, revisiting that area of the world um, after we complete the Roman story so um, we're uh, looking forward to that and thanks for the message Preeti and thank you to everyone for their messages this week it's um, really really heartwarming to receive them. Uh, There's been some significant activity on the discussion forum um, which doesn't always get a lot of attention. I think um, people are often, um, you know, quite shy to voice their opinions on various subjects for fear of, you know, uh, perhaps not feeling like they know as much as others. Uh, to be honest with you, that's 
you know, I'd, I'd still encourage you to get involved. I think, you know, it's um, it's a pleasure to learn and we all learn together, various stages of learning and, uh, about history and um, often the fastest way to learn is to discuss. Um, so come along to the discussion forum, sign up and join in one of the subjects, the active subjects at the moment that I've seen um, in business in the last week are about Troy and the Trojan War. Um, we talk about the battles, the naval battles of Salamis and Actium, uh, what caused Neanderthal extinction, uh, the legacy of ancient Egypt, and um, which uh, culture uh, did culture in the Americas develop from cultures of Asia or not? Um, so some fascinating subjects there, and um, I look forward to you coming along and maybe voicing your opinion and um, seeing what kinds of ideas that we can. Um, share between us we might be on the cusp of a, a great new discovery a great new enlightenment about a, a, a subject of history that uh, no one else has cracked maybe the history of the world podcast community can crack the code of some of these historical stories so come along and join in now then every week we let you know that um, you can support the podcast if you're enjoying the project and you'd like to uh, make a contribution to the podcast its success uh, then just simply go along to the history of the world podcast.com website it's the same website where you can click on the interact section and reach the discussion forum which we were just talking about and um, if you want to support the podcast just click on the patreon link and it will take you to a place where you can sign up to make a monthly donation from as little as one dollar a month and uh, it all adds up helps to contribute towards the podcast and those people who sign up become lifelong members of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. And um, we welcome into the History of the World podcast Illuminati this week Deborah F., Jerome Sinski, Michael Weinberg, Mandy Kirk, Chris and Elias Basher, all of which um, are now my, uh, members of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. Welcome. And uh, just visit the Patreon site to uh, see what kinds of rewards we offer to those loyal patrons of the podcast. Um, so thank you so much. Another way uh, to support the podcast, another great way to support the podcast is by rating and reviewing us wherever you listen to us. So we're just about to wrap up for the week, but not before I tell you what we're going to do next week. Next week is going to be a very special episode. We've had some profile episodes. We've had some battle episodes. We've had some summary episodes. Um, next week will be our first event episode. So we devote a whole podcast episode to an event in history. Uh, next week, we'll be taking a closer look at that um, incredible eruption of Mount Vesuvius and uh, the effects that it had on local towns, not least of all Pompeii, um, which um, was devastated by the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in the year 79. We're going to take a closer look at that and uh, find out exactly what happened and uh, some of the uh, some of the uh, politics surrounding it and. Um, some of the day-to-day -day life of those towns that have been um, wonderfully excavated now and um, certainly in a quite a fragile state as well. So 
um, some some serious preservation work needs to go on before we start losing uh, large areas of those sites. So um, certainly, definitely worth um, talking about, and we're going to devote an entire episode to that next week. So you'd be mad to miss it. Anyway, thank you so much for listening to this week's podcast. Uh, we'll be back next week. And until then, have a fun week, have a safe week, everyone, and don't forget to be good. Do you want more from the History of the World podcast? Then visit our website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com. You can join our discussion forum and find us on social media. Support the podcast for as little as $1 per month by clicking the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. The best ones will be read out. Be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to us.